Luke chapter 9 is where we're going today. And uh, we are going to continue this series under construction. And talking about this virtue called perseverance. And um, we, we understood last week that perseverance implies a degree of patience. But it goes deeper than the surface um, of Christian living that we often get ourselves engrossed in. Sometimes we, we, we talk about perseverance and oh, I'm just trying to be patient through these things from a very surface level thing. And, and, and perseverance causes us to go deeper. And um, it, it calls us to go into a more mature mindset. We've been talking about this, this uh, stages of building here. And uh, we've been talking about, uh, we have obviously a foundation of faith, uh, which is laid out by uh, the Apostle Peter in, his, uh, in, in Second Peter there. We have a framework of goodness. We have a back wall there, which is, we have talked about knowledge, and knowledge when it is mature, becomes what, church? Wisdom, awesome. Then the left wall over there is self-control. And we've been talking about self-control. Last week I brought out the idea that self-control, when it starts to look a bit more powerful in our lives, is when we're able to start taking note of victories going on in our life. you'll see that this is starting to build up slowly but surely now. It's starting to take shape now. This thing's getting a whole lot more firmer now. Even when I had the frame up at the very start, this thing was still moving around a bit too much for my liking. But now as everything's starting to come together, this thing's actually starting to make me feel a lot safer. We've got all these other virtues in play. We've got faith, we've got goodness, we've got knowledge, we've got self-control. And from that we then end up with lives that have conviction, integrity, wisdom, and some victories under our belt. And um, you put those four ingredients in, you'd have to agree that that starts to set us up for a life of endurance. Conviction, wisdom, self-control leading to victories, and, 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 you know, having, and having integrity, these things... We can only endure if we have those things going on. This is a crossing of a threshold from something where we, we're just bumping along to into something that is much more mature again as we go into endurance. But I also made some ominous statements last week. I know they were pushing um, our thinking a bit last week. If we are nominal believers if we're unconnected believers, if we're unaccountable or if we won't go on a journey of deliberate, intentional discipleship, then this building stage, this building journey will be on. This, what you see now, is as good as it's ever going to get. Throughout the week, I heard, of, uh, we've been seeing a bit of a, a trend at the moment or a disturbing trend. Around South Australia at the moment, there's actually been some building companies going broke. And there's a lot of families and a lot of uncertainty out there with a lot of these people suddenly going, I've got this half-built property out there and the company that's been building it is broke 
and I no longer know where I stand with that, right? That, that, if, if you've ever been in that spot, I have not. I could not imagine what they're going through there, but it would be a, har- a harrowing thing to have to try to, to navigate that. You've got a, a house that's only half built, and you don't know if the other part's ever going to be finished. There's a journey in Christianity that needs to be gone on, and endurance is the gateway into that. But a lot of houses in faith actually go bankrupt before the building project gets done. They will stop, and it'll look kind of like this, because they'll hit the wall of self-control, drop the bundle, and go back and do it all over again. It's almost like this vicious, vicious cycle that some believers go on because there is a journey of maturity they won't step into, a journey of accountability, a journey of community, a journey of connection, a journey of, of just going deeper in God that some believers just will not go to. And this will be as good as your life looks when God actually has so much more for us. Endurance is where it's at. This is where we start moving into this more mature expression of faith. Now today I want to speak a bit deeper into crossing that threshold. Into the realm of longevity and endurance in faith. Last week we explored endurance in our overall outlook. Understanding that a faith that doesn't have eternity consistently and productively in its sights will struggle to be an enduring one. We understand that that faith is lived out, and this is a big word, eschatologically. We live out in a way that knows and anticipates what is still to, to come for us when Christ returns. And at the same time, we are anticipating this in all that we do in the present as well. So we have this great thing to anticipate, a new heaven and a new earth. But we live lives now that anticipates that very end. In this thinking, the values and the outcomes of the kingdom of God are not just something we look forward to, but something we seek to be agents and exhibits of in our lives now. This takes us far beyond merely avoiding hell when life is done. And instead, it gives us a life worth living and enduring in the present. Ultimately, my thinking on this will come to a head with persecution next week. And my journey in understanding persecution at the moment is a very mixed bag. I have been surrounded by a lot of Christian leaders that I deeply admire. And things like this Israel Folau case and stuff like that have not really made things easy in this. And I've kind of had mixed emotions about the whole journey. And, and, and I feel like I'm almost, I'm almost like choosing between two dads <laughs> in, in terms of faith influences in my life. You know, this week, one person I deeply admire said, you know, church just needs to suck it up. And he's done more for justice than I ever will in my lifetime. Another one is saying, no, 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 we've got to take this to the courts and fight it out. And we've got all these different things, voices going on around there. And, and I'm on a journey of trying to reconcile all that as well and, and try to speak into that. And, and so I think I've got some interesting stuff to talk about next week when we talk about endurance and persecution. But this week, I just want to explore the idea of endurance and discipleship. 
And I want to read one key scripture that's going to feed my thinking today. It's Luke chapter 9. The Bible app is open, so you can find us in the events section of that. There'll be some basic notes for you to take in that setting. And we're going to look at just five verses, verses 57 to 62 today, and um, feed off of this together. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. This passage is told to us, and if we follow the order of events, we believe this is still somewhat early in Jesus' public ministry. Most likely the second year. This is the one that scholars call the year of popularity. His first year is a year of inauguration. The third one is a year of opposition. But right now he's in that sweet spot. The year of population, popularity. If this was happening in a neighborhood like today, we may, perhaps a little too hastily, look at the numbers of this thing and call it a revival. It's clear that the crowds are enjoying this stage of Jesus' ministry. They're loving the call to follow at this time. They're probably getting quite giddy watching the Pharisees squirm after every interaction with him. If we read the previous part of the chapter, we'll notice that so far only the inner 12 have grasped Christ's true identity and deity. And in the wake of that revelation, they're only just being brought in on God's agenda of the cross. And they're still not grasping that part themselves just yet. So with just the inner circle being aware of things, the crowd that's following Jesus right now is actually oblivious to that whole plan at this point. And in the midst of this oblivious giddiness, we read of three short but interesting conversations here. The first one is full of resolve in its sounding, isn't it? And how it sounds. I'll follow you. I will go anywhere you go. We've got songs that say that very thing in our repertoires today. Chris Tomlin's got a great one. Where you go, I'll go. You know? It's one of those regular Sunday morning cliche statements made within the safety of our four walls. In front of the crowd, this might sound like a brave statement. But in our passage, we see that Jesus is not seeing bravery. He's seeing bravery's chief substitute, bravado. Verse 
This man sees glory and a great persona to get behind. But he's overlooked the fact that there won't be hotels or restaurants booked each night to make this anywhere journey as comfortable as you would like. Throughout the course of this morning, I'm going to ask a number of rhetorical questions. In the Bible app, you can make note of these. This will be the journey of our reflection at the end of this message. But here's the first of those. Can a life of discipleship fueled by bravado and bold statements endure? From Jesus in this passage, the answer seems to say evidently not. If we're only in bravado and won't bravely face what Jesus calls us to follow to, this will get too uncomfortable. It will push for bravery and be found wanting. And a discipleship journey like this We'll end up moving on to the next big thing at some point. That's our first question. It only gets deeper from there. The second guy is interesting simply because we're told Jesus sees something in the guy and calls him. Jesus made the first move in this case. We see from at least 12 other instances that this could have been a big deal. Who knows what this guy could have written, where he could have gone, what he could have taught, what impact he could have had on the church. Jesus looked at him and said, follow me. You, follow me. That's interesting. Jesus just didn't go 12, I'm done. But he would eyeball people on the way and go, you, follow This is usually that big moment that we often describe or hear from others where Jesus clearly and powerfully intersects with our life and, 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 and there's an intersection between our life and our outlook and where Jesus steps into it. Many of us have these testimonies where Jesus stopped and got our attention and, and actually you know, we got his, he got ours and there was this intersection of, of just Jesus and us and, and we, we said, yes, I'm going to follow you. Bang, this is that moment. This is the time that most of us have encountered in order to be where we're at today. I know it's mine. But sadly, this guy sets a precedent that we see many times over, even today. Jesus is still pointing at people and saying, you, come and follow me. But not all will answer. Or worse still, they'll answer with, not yet. This guy has other priorities that he's willing to put Jesus, the one who singled him out and called him, on hold for. Let that sink in. And then consider ourselves in light of that. A 
And despite the way it is written out here, it's actually unlikely that he had to be at the funeral chapel anytime soon. Let me go and bury my father. In fact, most scholars tell us that the funeral has probably already happened. And this is actually likely he is in that in-between stage of the burial process. There was a custom there that the dad would be laid to rest in a cave for a year and then his bones would be buried for real in an ancestral gravesite. And the scholar's theory here is based on Jesus' response, let the dead bury the dead. Jesus is not a bad employer denying compassionate leave here. Jesus is addressing a mindset. He's saying something in essence of this. If I call you, why choose instead to sit around death and decay all that time? Why wait a whole year in grief and hopelessness and duty to the dead? Why would you pass up an opportunity to embrace and proclaim the kingdom that brings life? And what makes you think that in a year you're just going to go and look for me all of a sudden? Oh yeah, that call, I better go answer it now. To follow Jesus is to answer when he calls without delay. And move when and where he moves. It's not something that allows us to wait for the exact right and convenient time based on our own calendars and agendas. That sort of faith cannot endure. So let me ask a few more rhetorical questions here. I've already asked this one. Can a life of discipleship fueled by bravado endure? Let me go on for a few more. Can a life of discipleship that will start eventually endure? I'll start when I'm ready. Well, you'll stop when you're not ready either. You'll stop when you're ready too. This is a discipleship journey on our terms and timetables rather than Christ's. Can a life of discipleship that has no sense of urgency endure? According to Jesus, no. He tells this guy to leave death and leave dead things to the spiritually dead. And instead, embrace and proclaim the kingdom now. Proclaim in this passage means to herald thoroughly or fully. When we're called and focused on the fullness and life and the urgency of the kingdom, we will endure. If we wallow in anything less, we won't. The third guy is grappling with his sense of duty to family. Some people in this room today will grasp this part at a different level than others. Ancient Eastern culture, much like today's Eastern and tribal cultures, was built on an honor-shame society model. 
In ancient Israel, it was often a cause for shame when a young man would leave the family property or the family business or the family uh, pursuits to explore their own. Particularly the hollow and pointless ones of youth. When we hear the story of the prodigal son, part of that idea is in play there. Just taking the inheritance and going and living a frivolous lifestyle is actually a shameful act of this boy's life. Even if the older brother, in that case Israel, was to learn the bigger lesson in that particular parable, that the story is there, that there is a shame being brought on the family by the younger, this young guy. When we consider the conversation between Jesus and this young man, if he'd been chosen by a rabbi to pursue something religious but ordered, if a high-ranking, well-known rabbi walked past the homestead and discovered this boy and said, follow me, come under my yoke and and come with me, let me educate you, the family probably would have thrown a party. That would have been an honourable departure. Despite Jesus taking the ministry form of a rabbi, he was still to some degree a Galilean gone rogue to many. The established religious order was actually weary of him. Some of our community in this room today are following Jesus now and have done so breaking some family conventions. Some are following Christ despite a family history in other belief systems. For some of you, making the choice to follow Jesus at the expense of that has been a really, really big deal. An admirable one, one we should admire. So we could all imagine the pressure this man felt while trying to step into a whole new faith expression, trying to follow Jesus without making waves at the same time. He makes what the average human might call a reasonable request on face value. But Jesus sees something else in it that needs correction. The truth of the matter is that this man was actually seeking permission from Jesus to wait for his family to tell him it was okay to follow Christ. This was a case of letting other people dictate the terms of discipleship rather than Jesus. It was letting others set safer parameters of faith rather than the attractive and dangerous call of Christ. And in doing so, the safety that was in that was only for the benefit of those, not looking, those looking on, not the disciple himself. The safety was all about onlookers going, we want to keep you in a safe and manageable space. This man is looking at Jesus but couldn't help but look back at what he would be walking away from in order to do that. There was a safety net in what he was leading. 
If it didn't work out, for, for example, in a rabbi's school, there would be less shame in that and he could land on his feet back at the family home. If he was following anybody else but Jesus, if he was pursuing anything else but Jesus, there was a safety net. He could land on his feet back home and he would be fine. Some of us are living out that way right now. When I was running youth ministry, people would, young people would decide to follow Jesus and their parents were going, we would rather you be a party animal drinking and doing drugs than actually following Christ. They would not say that outright, but their conduct was, why can't you go partying with your friends? Why can't you be doing this sort of stuff? Why are you following Jesus? For some reason, no matter what we do, no matter what other way we follow, it's offensive to follow Christ. No matter what, if we made any other choice in the world, family, friends, society would, be off, would not be on our back anywhere near as much. Something strange about that. And yet, when we follow Christ, we become spoiled to the world. There's every chance the family would tell him he wouldn't be welcome back if it all went, went sour. And it appears in this man's case that if his family said no, he was willing to say no too. And in response to that, Jesus makes one last challenge for today's message. Put your hand to the plow if you like, but if you start looking backwards... If you start looking at everything else but Jesus, you're never going to plow truly. You'll be unfit for the task of followership. This is a simple agricultural picture in play here. Operating a plow needed a straight ahead gaze because what you were guiding, what you were turning over was right in front of you. When I was in high school, we were taking, <laughs> despite growing up all through primary school, riding push bikes and doing thousands of kilometers. In year seven, when I went to high school, we did a thing called push bike safety as part of PE. They taught us how to ride a bike in a straight line. We actually had a narrow bike lane marked out on our school quadrangle, on the Asheville. A little bit like the ones down Crouch Street that no driver acknowledges. And we would be required to ride straight, while at the same time make several head turns backwards to look out for traffic. And we all failed it many times over. It's not as easy as it sounds. Because everywhere you turn your head, your bike follows. And we were told, always look leftward, over your shoulder to the left. The car's on that side, but you still had to be rubbernecked this way. Why? Because if you look this way, you'll swing out towards traffic. At least if you hit the gutter, you fall over, everyone laughs. 
It's one thing to ride wild and free on BMX tracks and doing dumb things like my friends used to, used to do. We used to get on our 10-speed races back when they were a thing. And we would try to ride as fast as we could to set off speed cameras. Things like that. We were just silly kids. It was another thing to simply ride safely to school every day on the same busy roads. We learned in high school that riding truly is highly dependent on looking in the direction you're headed. If we end up looking everywhere but forward, the riding line follows suit. It's true riding a bike. Some of us also know it's true in our golf swing. Where you're looking is where the ball's going to go. I never look at the hole. What's going on? I must be looking at a lot of trees. It's also true in pushing a plow. Definitely on a farm and according to Jesus, also in faith. The Greek idea of looking back here is a picture of earnest contemplation. Sometimes we take up faith and we glance back, perhaps in temptation, perhaps in reflection on where we've come. But sometimes we glance back, we look back more out of desire to return where the carnal safety net is. So let me offer one last series of rhetorical questions. Can a faith that is based on the approval of others, family, friends, employers, society, social media, can that endure? Can a faith that looks back to ensure the safety net is still there, just in case, can that endure? And can a walk of faith designed around your ability to fall on your feet if it all goes bad, endure? Well, if this Christ thing doesn't work out, at least I can all fall on my feet. If that's our mindset, can our faith endure with that? Jesus says no. It's a case of plough truly or don't plough at all. There's an interesting case study of this sort of life in 1 Kings 19. I might just have a quick squeeze at it. Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him, threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my mother and father goodbye, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him, went back. He took his yoke of oxen, and he slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. And then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. Many of us may have read this passage many times over. 
It's a young man handpicked by God and is called from his family business into the rather uncertain lifestyle that came with being a prophet. Done in the most melancholic of ways. Elijah comes up, chucks a cloth over him and walks off. No oil, no fanfare, no, thus says the Lord, let me lay hands on you, let me do this big anointing. No, there you go, that's you. Keeps walking. And that's enough to grip Elisha. That's enough to get his attention. That's enough for him to go, that's my call, I'm answering. He does get to farewell his family like the, Jesus, like the guy Jesus encounters. But he has the outlook that Jesus would approve of, unlike the other guy. We read in this passage that he doesn't give his family a chance to make him change his mind, does he? He's already burned his tools. He's already cooked his plowing vehicle. He's eaten it with his friends in, 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 in farewell. He isn't getting in permission here. He's informing him of a decision he's already made. Or more accurately, he's informing them of a decision that God had already made for him. It's this sort of resolve that Jesus is looking for in those that follow him. When we continually look both ways in our faith expression, this will create conflict within that has no business being there. And permission from one would inevitably come at the expense of another. Jesus is calling for attention to him alone. If he calls, we answer. If he dictates terms, those are the ones we follow. That is the faith that endures. Now, as we consider this passage, do we see this as a universal call to sever all ties with family, sell every asset we have to live a nomadic life for Jesus? Not necessarily. I think other scriptures advise stable living and providing and protecting our family and all that sort of stuff. But there are lines in the sand that one must contemplate when it comes to fully and enduringly following Jesus. Or not. The theologian Michael Wilcock sums up the words of Jesus really well here. And he's been quoted many times over in a number of different blogs about following Jesus. Let me read this out. This is how he sums up the statements here. If I were to lead you towards work in which your income would be lower, your prospects, humanly speaking, would be more uncertain, and your accustomed standard of living non-existent, would you earnestly follow such leading? Or suppose I were to ask you to do something for me which, according to most people of your class and background, is simply not done. Or suppose I were to summon you to my service with such a compelling call that your nearest and dearest would have to be left without an explanation. Would you even then come my way? If it came down to choosing between two ways, 
Which would you choose? Which would you follow? Comfort, convention, culture, custom, or Christ? It's a massive call, isn't it? Now you see why endurance is a big leap from self-control. Now we see why this is the big jump into a mature journey of faith. This is a call to put a line in the sand. It's a call to a faith that puts the call of the kingdom above all else. It's a way of life that is not always humanly certain, but it is eternally sure. And if we'll embrace that sort of life as disciples, answering the call of Jesus, which is simply follow me, and trust the journey that he's taken us on, then we will discover that this is a faith that endures. We're going to need that sort of faith if persecution is the outcome. We'll look at that next week. But for now, I want to reflect on where we might be at. With these rhetorical questions put before us. Do any of these statements describe a part of your own faith makeup right now? It might be preceded with the phrase, can a life of discipleship? But the rhetorical answer to each of these questions is no. If we're seeing ourselves in these statements, then I want to pause. I want to reflect. I believe it's a call here for some serious business with Jesus. We'll sing, we'll worship the Lord in due time. But this will remain on screen now. I'm going to ask us to reflect. Is any of this like staring at a mirror right now? Is, is any of this challenging us? Is Jesus nudging us going, hey, this you, that's you, that's me. That's us. What does the Lord want to say to us today? Let's pray.